Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. All right, what up, though? Hello to you, and welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall, and it's nice to talk to you once again. I just want to kind of hit those who are Gen Xers, Xennials, or older millennials that about maybe two weeks or a week ago, whenever you're actually going to hit this podcast, but let me put it to you like this more of a context. In September 29th, 1998, but the past September would be the anniversary of September 29th, 1998 of two classic hip-hop albums that was released 25 years ago. Yeah, I'm still on Hip Hop 50. Kill me. But in celebration of Hip Hop 50, I think it's best to acknowledge these two masterpieces because they were both classics, but they were both so different from one another. The first one is what I like to call a tale of two ATLians, Outcast and the creation of Equimini. Yeah. So for those of us Outcast heads, I've been rocking with Outkast since the beginning. I mean, it was one of the first albums I had bought that I was up on that nobody had to tell me about. You know, I remember when Players Ball came out, and a lot of people don't even realize that Players Ball was actually a, a Christmas song. It's actually a Christmas song. It was on the LaFace Christmas album when Outkast formed. Well, Andre and Big Boy met each other and they got introduced to L.A. Reid. That's how he wanted to debut them. And they were kind of hesitant. Like, I don't want to do no Christmas album. But they was like, we're going to put our own spin on it. So that's why when you listen to Players Ball come on, the narrator is talking about all the players everywhere because they're talking about how they do it. And here's a fun fact. Players Ball, the video, was directed by a young Sean Puffy Combs. Go figure, right? So... When Outkast came out, I was a huge fan. I was up on that song early. I used to listen to the Rap Blast back in Detroit. They used to come on on Saturdays um, around like 10 o'clock. I would go to the mall with my friends, come home, have myself Maxwell tape, leave it inside to take off the pause so we can record the latest songs. And Players Ball was a song I got up on real quick. And so... I love that first album, everything on it, from Hootie Who to Get Up, Get Out, and Get Something. And Outkast made history because, well, sometimes what gets overlooked is that infamous 95 Source, you know, award show, you know, between Suge Knight, East versus West. But Outkast had won the award for Best New Artist, and when they get up there, they're getting booed. Now, it's been controversy on why they're getting booed. I saw a documentary one time when Nas was saying that the reason they were booing, that they wasn't necessarily booing outcasts. He said, but that was the first time that all of the boroughs of New York, Queens, Brooklyn, and all of them were in one room. And so they were all just repping each other and outcasts got caught up in the middle. But I'm not going to tell nobody how they feel. So outcasts felt like they were getting booed. So when they got up there, there's that infamous speech, that line, when Big Boy says to Andre, tell him what's on your mind, and Andre Three Stacks, who was just Dre, for those of us that were Andre, 
outcast fans from the day one. We remember when he was just Drake. And he get up there, and I'm paraphrasing. He talking about I'm sick of closed-minded fools. And this is a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old Dre. Closed-minded fools. You know, we got we got a, a demo tape that nobody want to hear. But the South got something to say. That's all. And, man, we never knew how much that line was going to be for the future. Now, they end up dropping an album after that called AT Aliens. Now, I like to believe that AT Aliens, and even when I read, that was them pretty much in their rebel kind of phase of saying, you know what? We feel like we're aliens. We don't connect with the West Coast. We don't connect with the East Coast. We are who we are, so we're aliens. And, man, that was another classic album on there. You got Will Steel, the song, AT Aliens. I mean, I love that album. I played it to death. You understand? Um, especially with the, um, the mainstream. I love that song. Still play that to this day. However, that's also the album, if you start to notice that Dre, and big boy are starting to look a little bit different. Dre is wearing a turban, okay? And your boy, big boy, is starting to be more pimpish. <laughs> and whispers, even then, that they were going to break up because they were starting to look a little different. In the beginning, they both was wearing Atlanta Braves jerseys. Both was wearing caps, you know. Their flow even was sounding a little bit the same. Contrary to popular belief, back and forth, the way they were rapped, it wasn't that much of a difference. Yeah, you can go back and now with your fresh ears and you can say Dre was better and a lot of people like to claim, but honestly, they were match for match back then. But AT Aliens is when you start really seeing the difference in their personalities. And it's not to say that Andre is so superior than Big Boy. It's just that Andre happens or happened to become one of the GOATs. And Big Boy is dope too. But the whispers of the breakup came. And so what happens? They're getting ready to drop their third masterpiece. And that third masterpiece was titled Equimini. And Equimini was the Gemini and the Aquarius of both of them merging. They are two extreme personalities coming together for one. Now, here's the thing. When the lead single came out, I have to be honest with you, it was called Rosa Parks. I liked it. I didn't love it. Does that make sense? I like the song, but I didn't love it. I was rocking with it, but I didn't love it. Because I was like, okay, you know, Rosa Parks up there. But, but it was dope. It was dope. But when you watch that video, they are going more into who their personalities are. I mean, Dre is in some fur boots with football pads on the shoulders. Um, Big Boy is in straight up pimp mode, sitting in a chair with women on some daddy fat sacks. <laughs> I mean, and you can see it, right? I mean, they even on the cover of the album with the with the art. That's how they got down. However, they made it work. Now, when you actually, you know, listen to the album, the growth for me that stands out in the Quimini is the musical production. I mean, they used to depend on a lot of the Dungeon family. That was the collective. Well, I would say organized noise, but the collection of them. Goody Mob, you know, with CeeLo and all of them, the Dungeon Family, but Organized Noise is who they depended on when it came to production for the first two albums. But you go back and you look at the credits on the Quimini, a lot of the production was by Andre and Big Boy. It's by the Outcast. They were coming into their own. One of the first songs that stood out to me is a song called Slump. Oh, man, that's a country jam right there. It comes on, hey, we got to eat. Do, 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 do. 
From Funk and Bax, we on a mission. I, I, I can't remember the verse, but it, I love that song. It, it goes hard for me right now. I mean, I think I had just started driving at that point. So I was just riding around on there. I felt like I was with these guys, you know? That song is one thing that I really love. I mean, it's a dope boy country anthem. But the other song that was the extreme opposite of that was Liberation, which is a classic protest record represented by both artists with different voices, but they sound as if they're coming from the same vision. I mean, you got Erica Badu that's singing on there. CeeLo is singing on there. There's a fine line between love and hate. Hey, you can't wait too late because, baby, I'm on it. There's a fine line between love and hate. See, you can't wait too late because, baby, I'm on it. Now, I might be paraphrasing some words and make it sound rhythmically good, but listen, if you go back, you listen to Liberation, it still sounds good right now. And one of the other songs that really sticks out is The Art of Storytelling, part one, because that's when you can really see their MCism is elevated. I mean, the way Big Boy is telling the story and the way Andre is telling the story, I still want to give an emotional RIP to Susie Screw and Sasha Thumper. I still feel a certain type of way about the characters that they breathe life into through their rhymes. I mean, Equimini is an album. It was just the perfect hip hop album. I mean, music, lyric, rhyme, the presentation, the subject matter. When you listen to it now, it don't sound dated. The interludes in between, they got real Southern on that album, you know? And it just felt like the most perfect hip hop album, even to this day, 25 years later. I mean, I don't see another album being that perfect. You understand? I mean, Sales-wise, they accomplished platinum status within a month and double platinum two months after that. And to make it a full circle moment, that same award show, the Source Magazine, where they got booed, awarded them five mics. Now, five mics used to be a most sacred rating in the Source Magazine. I mean, if you got five mics, that was a big deal. I mean, you are in the company of some classic work by Trot Car Quest, by Ice Cube, who else had five mics and I'm probably missing right now? Mm, I can't. It's, it's on the top of my head. I might be losing it. But five mics. Oh, they lost soul. Five mics was a big deal. Before Benzino came, got mad at you know Eminem and all this other stuff. It ruined the whole magazine, the magazine never been saying. But there was a time when five mics in the source was a big deal. And the full circle moment was them getting five mics in the same publication of the award show where they were booed at just a few years prior. Now, you got to think about that for a second. I mean, how satisfying is that? Equimini is a musical masterpiece. I mean, it pushed hip-hop itself beyond its comfort zone. It's responsible for the genre's growth, you can arguably say, outside of the Bronx, past Atlanta, and worldwide. Because the great thing that I always loved about Big Boy and Andre's relationship is Big Boy never felt as if he had to separate from his man just because he started dabbling in different clothes. He loved his man. And that love came out through their music and that creativity that they both shared and that bond that they had came out through their rhymes and every record right there on the Quimini. I mean, listen... They went on to drop two more albums after that. Actually, three more albums after that that we all love. 
but equimini is arguably their best work, hands down. And not only is it Outkast's best work, it is one of the best hip hop albums of all time. And I'll arguably say it is one of the best musical masterpieces of all time. Yeah, give me your Bon Jovi's, give me your Bruce Springsteen's. I don't care. I would make that argument with you also. But that was a great album, classic. And it was 25 years ago. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. Classic albums drop every day, right, B? Well, they actually they don't. But what made that day so important? Well, you know who else dropped that day? September 29th, 1998, 25 years ago? Jay-Z, Volume 2, Hard Not Life. I know, right? It's just, <laughs> I mean, you can't get a more polar opposite of a pair, of a trio. I mean, when you got outcast, they're, they're a duo. And they are so different. From what Hove was pushing out. And the interesting thing about Hove is that although right now he is a billionaire hip-hop mogul, I mean, he's hosting Blackjack, you know, fundraisers where you got to pay $125,000 just to walk through the door. Yeah, he travels. And he's looking like Basquiat, an updated version. But in 1998, his career was at a crossroads. Seriously. His first album was a classic debut, Reasonable Doubt but it didn't sell anything. His second album, In My Lifetime, it sold, but critically, nobody was working with it. People did not like it. So when it came time for his third attempt, it was a dice roll. Yeah, I mean, was Jay going to be somebody that was going to be relevant? Was he just going to be another flash in the pan? Well, let's let's go back for a little second. You see, in 1996, when Jay-Z released his debut, Reasonable Doubt, at the time, it was noted for his lyricism. I mean, Jay rapped about some ball stuff. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. A lot of it was going over my head because he wasn't just talking about the streets from a corner perspective. You know, those are the blue-collar workers. He was coming from a perspective of being the actual supplier. I mean, when you think about the lead single dead presidents, everybody in the video, AZ is in the video, the Notorious B.I.G. is rolling the dice in the video. I mean, we... Went on to find out that Jay and Big had a friendship. We would see Big in the Ain't No Future and Foxy Brown song, and we would see their camaraderie. But also, we would get the chance to hear them spit just one time, and that was on Brooklyn's Finest. And allegedly, that's the time where Jay realized that Big also didn't write his rhymes, and they are going bar for bar. And don't get me wrong, Big is the king of New York at that time, especially in 1996. I remember he said that bar... If Faith have twins, she might have two pops. Get it? Two pop. I mean, but Hove is right there. That was the song that made me personally start taking him seriously. I was like, oh, this guy is, he's matching with Big. Okay, because Big used to leave black people when they were riding with him. But not Hove. Nah. Again, yeah, can't knock the hustle with Mary J. Blige. You know, Mary is always on your hook and she's the queen of hip hop for a reason. But the album sales didn't align with it, especially during the time of 1996 when you got megastar hip-hop artists like Big, Pac, and the Fugees, for Christ's sake, who were selling albums worldwide. I mean, checking for Jay, at that time, I mean, you know, see, here's the thing. For those that don't know, the reason why Jay always referred to himself as the Mike Jordan of rap is not just because he's he likes to consider himself a GOAT. It's also because of the timeline of when Jay entered the game. You see, 
I saw an interview one time before where he said that he was having a conversation with Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan always felt a certain type of way that by the time he came into his own, Magic and Bird, who were the kings of the NBA at the time, he didn't really get a chance to really go at it with them. Larry Bird had ended up getting injured when Mike won his first championship in 91 and Larry Bird was going through back problems. And 1991, after he beat the Lakers and he beat Magic, he wanted to see him again. But for those that don't know, later on in that summer or that fall is when Magic Johnson announced that he has AIDS and he wouldn't, HIV, he was HIV positive, and he would no longer, he would be retiring from basketball. So Jay refers himself to that because when he came into the game, the game was all about Tupac and it was all about Big, who are like a Magic and a Larry Bird. But they both was murdered. He didn't get a chance to really spar with them when he came into his own. You see, back in 97, the Notorious B.I.G. had died. And fans instantly was looking at Jay-Z like he was going to be the next guy, especially the fact that Pac had died six months later. But unfortunately, with the sophomore effort in my lifetime, it didn't really fill that void. There was something missing. See, Irv Gotti said an interview where he said, when Big died, Jay went and got all Big's beats. He decided in that moment, I'm going to go work with them. He barely worked with the people that he worked with on Reasonable Doubt. He went and worked with the Hitmen, who are the Bad Boy production team, who did Life at the Death and everything. So he wanted to do those pop records and rhyme over that. Hence why you had songs like Sunshine and Big on there rapping, you know, with the high colors and all their videos colors. And he got the women dancing in the video. But it didn't go well. It didn't go well. It, didn't, it would work for Big using those 1980 samples didn't really work for a whole. It, it came off like an imitation. It, it, the album sold, you know, it did well, but the streets wasn't really feeling it. So Jay is now at a crossroads. Yeah, they put out the streets was watching that DVD and had uh, more street songs on that DVD, but you need an album if you really want to be in this game and you really want somebody to really say, yo, that's that guy. So Jay did that. The first single off volume two was Hard Not Life. I mean, and they used the sample that the Gen Xers at that time had been singing ever since they were like five, six years old from the movie Andy. I mean, it was a direct sample. It's the Hard Not Life for us. Now, keep in mind, I had never saw the 1977 musical film Andy. I never even saw the play. I just know who Andy is. So I was lost when this came out, why everybody was so into this song. But it was. And he's on there slowing down his flow. He's rapping about rags to riches, which at a time, everybody can rock with. Now, you see also, this was, to me, a more confident version of Hope. It was. Because he was on the cover of the album, sitting next to a Bentley Azir. I think that's how you pronounce it. All black. It was a drop top. I mean, he was a shameless capitalist MC. Yeah, I'll say that again. He was a shameless capitalist MC. I mean, to any old school hip hop critic or anybody that can remember what that argument was back in the day, it's kind of the same argument we've been having with hip hop since its inception. But there was a big, are you commercial? And, you know, you're just rapping about jewels and all of that. But Jay, he was embracing the yuppie values. He was. You know, the whole Wall Street, greed is good. <laughs> I mean, he didn't care. I mean, when you think about the song Money Cash Hoes featuring DMX, where he was rapping and he spit, 
I know they're going to criticize the hook on the song. Like, I give a, I'm just a crook on this song. I mean, that's him telling you. I care not. This is what it is. I'm here. I like BBS jewelry. I like buying Gucci. I like this, what this is. He took what Big had put down and was running with it. But you also heard his lyricism that didn't suffer, especially when you think about the song Jigga Wet, Jigga Who, featuring his mentor, then mentor, Jazz O. They exchanged rapid fire flows. I got a condo with nothing but condoms in it. Same place with a rhyme event. I mean, he's giving it to you. This is also one of the times where Jay is becoming real slick with his disses. You got ride or die. Where he snicked these, you know, makes. You know, check out your own videos. You'll still only be number two. You got another song with Foxy called Paper Chase, which to me, him and Foxy were probably like the best hip-hop Bonnie and Clyde that we've had. That's just to me. I used to think that Meg Thee Stallion and the baby had a good chance of that, but that all went to ish. So, yeah. But the brilliance of Jay-Z creating Volume 2 is the album's connection to the American obsession with self-made wealth stories. Jay was intertwining humble beginnings with that bootstrap mentality that resonated amongst a lot of people who fantasize about becoming rich and famous, especially here in America. I mean, I already saw Jay in an interview where he said, I think creatively the zone and the emotions that was put into the album, when the people heard it, they really realized and they really related to the joint, unquote. Yeah, because even if people aren't living that life, they want to live that life. So Jay talking about how he went from here to there was something in 1998 everybody was resonating with. And he straight took the mafioso rap that had been birthed by Coogee rap and elevated by Big and Nas, but he transformed it into a straight Black Wall Street reckoning. Volume 2 was the benchmark of the turning point in Jay's career and hip-hop itself because in the year of 1998, that is the time where hip-hop started to embrace its commercial value as well as critical value. Now, that's my thing on Volume 2. The third part of this conversation is about, in 1998, when I talk about hip-hop embracing its commercial value, you have to think about what albums came out in that year. DMX is Dark and Hell is Hot, which Irv Gotti is saying that that's what influenced Jay to go back and get some grimier, more street-oriented producers. Big Punk, Capital Punishment, Lauryn Hill, The Miseducation, Outkast, Equimini, and Jay-Z, Hard Not Life. Now, I'm pretty sure there's other albums, 98, that I just can't remember at this moment, but 98 is that year where the albums that were commercially successful, unlike respectfully, the MC Hammers of the world, who I think Hammer is dope, but there was never an argument critically that matched with the commercial success that the albums like Please Don't Hurt Him was, was producing. And now, listen, looking back on it, that opinion needs to be changed because Hammer just put everything into his performance. And when I look back on some Hammer performances, recently I saw, or... The one when he performed at the MTV Awards where Arsenio Hall was hosting. Yeah, Hammer put a lot of work into those performances, man. So we got to start respecting Hammer. It's just what it is. However, the Reasonable Doubts, I'm sorry, the Hard Not Lives and the Equimini 
Nobody could argue. And that's when hip hop was also giving you what you wanted in every category. We wasn't all forced to listen to the same because of Clem and I and Hard Not Life are two completely different albums. But yet, both of them arguably birthed what was to come. You see, Equim and I breathe life into the, the artists and the songs that we would come to love from their tree. You know, the Kendrick Lamars, the space age type of rap, the alternative type of flows that people were going, the introspective, the space of talking about this and this and that and blending it and making it make sense to everyday things versus Jay. The money, the brag, the braggadocious, I look nice, this is what I'm wearing, and I'm not going to say sorry to you. Yeah, you can see that in hip-hop. Arguably, maybe some would say a little bit too much now, but you got to understand, yeah, there were people who did dabs of that before, and all praises, especially on the Outcast side, to try to call questioning them. But Outcast, they took it to a whole different thing. And not to mention, after that, the South just took over. And they haven't released their chokehold on the culture since. When Andre told you that the South had something to say, <laughs> he meant that ish. Because in 1998, you had the up rise of No Limit Records. And a year after that, you had cash money taking over for the 99-2000. And everybody after that ain't laid down since. So yeah, Equimini. A lot of them people owe their career to that and the things that we rap about in this culture right now. But the thing that I love about those two albums being released on the same day is that that's what hip hop originally is all about. You do your thing and I do my thing. And we both just put out good music. Because listen, when I go back and listen to Hard Not Life, yeah, you can make a criticism about certain things. Of course, right? Especially in terms of, you know, references of women and things. Not even no doubt about that. And listen, in hip hop, has always needed to mature in that. But when you listen to Heart Not Life and you think about what I just said about Jay-Z and where he was, Jay-Z so five mil. I don't even know, to be honest with you, I just saw Memphis Bleak say on Drink Champ, Jay ain't touched five mil since. It's his best-selling album. And whether you like that album or not, that album turned the tide. Because Heart Not Life let you know that Jay-Z was here to stay that he was not only going to become a fixture, but he was going to become a goat in this culture. And yeah, there's always been somebody to make that argument that Jay-Z has never been on top, right? Because 1998, yeah, that was the year of DMX and Lauryn Hill and Outkast. There are also times in Jay-Z's high point in his career where somebody else was always in the front. Eminem, I mean, he even said it himself years later after 1998, right? Only... Those who are selling units is M, Pimp, Juice, and Us, as in Eminem, Nelly, and Rockefeller. And he didn't sell as many records as Nelly, but he was always there. He was always there. He didn't sell as many records as Eminem, but he was always there. He was always there. Would you want to be number one for a summer? Or would you want to be number three for a decade? I mean, that's the start of his reign right there of controlling every summer. I mean, he went on a six-summer reign after that. What would you rather be? Me personally. I don't mind being number three if I'm going to be top three for a good 10-year span, you know? But then again, I don't know. But the thing about Hope and the thing about Hard Not Life and the thing about Equimini is that they are both albums that when they was released, they took hip-hop 
and with Lauren Hill and with Big Pun and with X, 1998, they made hip hop totally destroy that argument that rap was crap and hip hop is just a fad. They destroyed it. I don't see nobody making that argument that hip hop is just a flash in the pan after 1998. Before then, hip hop had to suffer for about 10 years of being taken seriously. I mean, in 1998 alone, Jay-Z didn't even show up to receive his best hip hop rap album from the Grammys because he was protesting because they did not want to premiere or televise that award ceremony, that award category of best rap album. Lauryn Hill was only televised because Lauryn Hill in that same award in 1998, I think it's the 41st Grammys, she won best album of the year, so they had no choice. But after that, you ain't gonna deny us no more. We here. The culture is here to stay. And that's what I want to bring to you in conclusion is that this hip-hop thing, this love thing that we all feel that we all embrace when it comes to these things. And to those of us that are 35 and up, whenever you want to have a conversation with a younger generation, someone who is in front of you, don't just dismiss what they got. Try to break down why the albums that we hold as classics, why they are so dear. It's like when you're having a conversation on why Michael Jordan is greater than LeBron James. You can't just say the six rings, although the six rings should be a healthy argument. And this comes from someone who hates Michael Jordan's guts growing up in Detroit, couldn't stand him. But you got to break down why the people Michael Jordan was playing against, why they was vicious. That's why you get documentaries like The Last Dance, why they were so important. Because honestly, looking back, I didn't realize that, for example, he had to go seven games with the Indiana Pacers in the playoffs. I, mean, I, I totally forgot that. You go back, you look at the history of Hard Not Life, think of where hip-hop was in 1997 versus looking at where it was in 1998. There's a significant growth. There's a significant difference. You have to break down to the younger generation why these albums are held in such high regard and why, because we pretty much had two thrillers drop on the same day. The same reason they used to break down to us why Thriller is such a great album and a big deal. The same reason why if you're early 2000s head, you got to break down why Confessions is such a great deal. Tell them about the before. And tell them about the after and what it did for that person's career and what it did for the culture career. Don't just give them just the lyrics of it. But break down to them why musically this album right here still stands the test of time. Why it don't sound dated. Where they getting those beats and those drums from. Why they rapping the way they rapping from. Because of the tree right here. What it did for the culture. It elevated it. Because if you're not about elevating the culture, you're just like everybody else. You're just there. So yeah, Hard Not Life, Equimini, 25 years ago. Want to take time, put that on notice. That does it for me. I appreciate you as usual. You can make sure you check out all episodes or the latest episodes of History of Being Black everywhere book podcasts can be heard. I know it's on Apple Music. I know it's on Spotify. You can also follow me on all social media platforms at Hall Society. Make sure you are going on IG to check out the History of Being Black Instagram and make sure you're checking out Mean Online Instagram for more updates on what we have in store. As usual, you be blessed and you be successful. 
and I'll talk to you soon. We ghost. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.